0: While I'm sitting having a very nice breakfast, a cup of tea, my wife there, some lovely music being played uh, in the radio, the sun's shining, the sky is blue, we're just in the kitchen nook, warm, comfortable and very pleasant. And as is our wont, we then read the Bible together and pray, and so I open up Psalm 94 on this very lovely, pleasant day, and I read, O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. And there was this kind of jarring, I just changed gears without using a clutch, and it felt all kind of strange for the opening line of this psalm leaps off the page at us in an almost extreme political incorrectness O oh Lord God of vengeance O oh God of vengeance shine forth I might do just a quick survey amongst you and have you anybody and what well, the numbers of you who have this as one of your memory verses might like to raise your hand. No, I had a feeling about that. It's not the kind of memory verse and I've never seen a tapestry of it either. See, in our language and our thought forms, vengeance is only always wrong and immoral. Vengeance or revenge, according to Wikipedia, that source of all true information, is a harmful action against a person or group in response to a grievance. I mean, Wikipedia is no great authority, but it is an authority on how people think because it is made up of people who put their words there. And that is how the word is used. That is how people think about vengeance. Doing Things with Vengeance, when I go across to the Macquarie Dictionary, I found it talked about with force of violence, extremely to a surprising or unusual degree. It even linked the word vengeful with vindictive. So it comes as a bit of a shock to start the psalm talking of Yahweh, the Lord in capital letters, as the God of Vengeance. And not only talking of him as the God of vengeance, but also calling upon him to, to exercise his vengeance, to shine forth in his revenge. It doesn't sound like a psalm of good public relations. It's not the title that we want to sell to the world. Did you know our God? He's a God of vengeance. He is the God of vengeance. It's not how most people want to approach others with the message of God. We would talk about, O Lord God of mercy, O Lord God of love, O Lord God of truth, O Lord God of faithfulness. But O Lord God of vengeance? It doesn't sound like it will fly in the public opinion arena. But look a little closer at the vengeance the psalm is talking of. and Notice how in verse 2, he links vengeance with judge, repay, deserve. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. This is more in line with the traditional dictionary meaning of the word vengeance. The Oxford English Dictionary has it as punishment inflicted or retribution exacted for an injury or wrong. And when you compare those kinds of two usages of the word, notice the difference between them. In Wikipedia, in common parlance and speech today, it's harmful action, whereas in the Oxford Dictionary it's punishment or retribution. In the Wikipedia it's in response to a grievance, whereas in Oxford it's in response to an injury or a wrong. I mean, I can have all kinds of grievances. I can have a grievance that you looked at me the wrong way or that you stood in front of me in the queue or I can have any number of grievances for which I then can take harmful action in response and it'd be completely unjust. It can be completely wrong, not giving you what you deserve. But that's not what the word initially originally would have meant even with our translators who tend to be people who love old-fashioned meanings of words the kinds that you find in the Oxford dictionary but not out in the streets of Sydney. The psalmist is not talking about vindictive aggression of a temperamental person who is seeking revenge on insubstantial or unsubstantiated kinds of hurts and who is so angry as to lose all control and inflict excessive harm and torture on his enemies. That's the kind of word we have with vengeance, but that's not what the psalmist is talking about. The psalmist is talking about the judge, the judge of all the earth who judges justly, who will give to the wicked what they deserve in repayment for what they have done. It's not an I for no eye. It's not two eyes for one eye. It's an eye for an eye. It's repayment for what is done, no more than what is done, but what is done. He's calling for justice from the judge. Under the teaching of the scriptures, our society has been taught not to allow people to take revenge for God's representative, the government, is supposed to take revenge for us. The government is to intervene and establish the guilt or the innocence of the person and then exact a punishment that is appropriate for the crime that they've committed. But payback is not to be ours. That's not our responsibility. We, we don't pay people for what they have done to us. The police, the courts, the judge, the judiciary, the prison system, the fining, They all work out what should be done. Come with me to Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, page 1131, page 1131 to Romans chapter 12. It's one of those passages where the chapter division is unhelpful. But we really need to go across the end of chapter 12 into chapter 13. But look at verse 19 of chapter 12. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome evil. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is an authority? then do what is good and you will receive his approval for God. He is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he doesn't bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So in this world, we never take vengeance. We don't take revenge because God's is the role of avenge. We leave it to him. And in this world, he has appointed governments to do that job for us. And so this separation of the victim from the perpetrator by bringing God's avenger into the middle of the system, namely the judiciary system, is really important to stop the ongoing tribal warfare back and forth, back and forth across hundreds of years sometimes, as people keep paying back each other for what their great-grandfather did, God is the one for whom vengeance, justice, is established. And in this world, he uses governments for that purpose. But come back to our psalm, back page 593, 593, and back to Psalm 94. For our psalmist, his question is, how long? You see it there in verse 3. He knows God will judge, this confidence runs all the way through the psalm, but he doesn't know how long before the judgment comes. He doesn't know how long he will have to endure the injustice, the pain, the suffering. He doesn't know how long he will have to endure the wicked and their arrogance. I am saying nothing about the right or wrong of any case that is involved at the moment with the, the drugs in sport. But I notice that one of the people who has been seemingly in the sights of the government over the sport, namely the captain of the New South Wales rugby league, he's complaining about how long it is taking for the judgement to come. 18 months ago, he was named. No case has yet been brought for him. No action has been taken against him. Just the Damocles sword hanging over his head for 18 months. And he's saying, this is detrimental to my life. He's even said that you know he hasn't had a third child because of the anxieties that have been provoked by what is happening. It's ruining his life not to have the judgment come. I have no idea if he's innocent. I have no idea if he's guilt. I don't even understand the drugs they're talking about. But the delay in justice is a real problem and can become in itself injustice for notice how verse three and four the problem is that the wicked exalt themselves during this time their arrogance their boasting it's the character of the wicked of course to rejoice in their power to rejoice in their violence to rejoice in their victory to rejoice in making fun of God's people As if it's not bad enough to have been beaten, it's worse that you have your nose rubbed in the dirt as well. It's an important principle of life, to be humble in defeat and magnanimous in victory. Some of our sporting teams haven't understood the basic politeness in this regard. To rejoice over the people you have just defeated is a double evil brought upon them magnanimous in our victory but the wicked are not magnanimous they exultant in their victory and for the psalmist it's more than just boasting arrogance of verse 4 it's the reality of their continued unjust treatment of people look at verse 5 they crush your people O lord and afflict your heritage they kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless We can't tell if this is somebody external to Israel like the Assyrians or the Babylonians or internal to Israel, just wicked people within the nation. But their wickedness is seen in the way that they oppress, in particular, the weak, the vulnerable, the widows, uh, the sojourners, the refugees who have come, people who don't have the support of of the background of the community but are living as strangers in a strange land they are always more vulnerable than the person who's got his family around about him and his citizenship papers and his job and his house and of course the orphans the fatherless they are always more vulnerable the people who have no recourse to power or weapons the people who can't defend themselves they are being crushed by these wicked people Yet even worse is the arrogance of these wicked people in their attack upon God. They attack God by attacking God's people, especially the people who are God's care, widows and orphans, because he's the, he's the husband of the widow, he's the father of the fatherless. But they also do it with total contempt against God. In verse 7, you see, they say, Yahweh doesn't see. The God of Jacob doesn't perceive. What we're doing can't be seen by God. Here is the fool's folly. Verses 7 to 11 is really just about it. For as the psalmist says in Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They they do abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, and the beginning of folly is to say there is no God. It's not an intellectual fool as if this person couldn't pass an IQ test. Some of the greatest fools in the world belong to Mensa and pass IQ tests right out where you and I do not even think or understand. It's got nothing to do with intellectual capacity. It's got to do with moral decision-making. There is the folly. The unwise, as it puts it there. In verse 8, understand, O dullest of the people, fools. When will you be wise? See, the opposite of fool is not intelligent. The opposite of fool is wise. And these are not wise. The next couple of pages, verses over the page demonstrate the foolishness of their thinking, the folly of it. Yahweh doesn't see? How can that be? Verse 8, He who planted the year, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but breath. The folly of man knows no end. God is the creator of heaven and earth. You have to relate to the reality of your existence, not make it to suit yourself, not make up, well, I want, I think the world is, or I would like to think of God as, that is no way to actually relate to reality. I'd like to think the prime minister is, I'd like to think that the queen will, I'd like to, you can like to think all you like to think, but it actually has got nothing to do with reality. It's got to do with the fantasies of your own head. It's like the small child who closes their eyes and assumes, therefore, you can't see them because they can't see you. On Sundays, I'm preaching a series at the moment looking at the Bible's challenge to a dead world, for the Bible views this world as already dead, and looking at it through the eyes of Genesis and the creation events in particular and seeing the dead world's way of understanding the atheist's way of understanding. The atheist's attempt to try and come to terms with the fact that the world as an accident is meaningless and amoral when he looks at a world which is full of meaning and morality. But you can't have the meaning and the morality without God. And he doesn't want to have God. So it's meaningless, it's amoral but then he keeps on introducing back meaning and morality because you can't live without them. Yahweh, the Lord, understands. He knows. He teaches man to know. And he also knows the man and his thoughts are but a breath. We came yesterday. We think today we're gone tomorrow grasp the reality of our own transience, friends, our own mortality, our great thoughts. And don't we all have great thoughts someday under the shower? That's where I always have them because I can't write them down. And by the time I've toweled myself off, I can't remember them. But those great thoughts that we may have, who's going to pay any attention to them? And who pays any attention to anybody's thinking once they have retired from their position of power and authority within society I keep quoting 20th century thinkers to young adults because I read the 20th century thinkers when I was a young adult and they keep on saying to me but who's that what is he why should we listen to them what have they got to teach us where do they come from what did they do For me, it's current affairs. For them, it's ancient history. It is astonishing how quickly people disappear from the face of public consciousness. Within a few decades, not only are you dead, but your books are also remanded. Uh, They're recycled for paper and sometimes they can be found in the white elephant stalls of the local cwa jumble sale for 10 cents 5 if you've signed it how this is all to be contrasted with the man who knows the blessing of yahweh in verse 12 following the man who has yahweh discipline and teach him is truly blessed and favored one discipline means to be instruct to warn to rebuke To correct, to chasten, that's all involved in discipline. It's not just pain and punishment discipline. It's what the father does to his son to teach him the ways of the world. God disciplines those whom he loves. We're told in Hebrews 12, it can be the discipline of letting us experience the consequences of our actions to our own hurt. But it comes from love so painful as it may be, we accept it because we know it is for our good because the person who gives it to us we know loves us. So with the discipline of God. But notice how the discipline of God in verse 12 involves teaching from the law. For there is the wisdom of God and there we find the ways of God in this world. There we find how to live as God's people and there we find rest from trouble. You see it in verse 13. It's a a slightly unusual and unexpected verse 13. Pick it up from the end of verse 12. And whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. That, I think, is the unusual verse of the psalm. The word rest uh, means respite, uh, relief. So in the midst of our troubles, God can give from the law... He can give us some relief, some respite, some rest until the pit in which the evil, the wicked are going to fall. In the Bible generally the pit that is dug for the wicked is dug by the wicked. They dig a pit for other people to fall into but they themselves fall in the pit that they have dug. The discipline and teaching of the law gives us respite. For we know from Yahweh that he will not forsake his people. We know in the midst of the trouble we're experiencing, Yahweh is with us. We are the Lord's people. He will not abandon us. He will not leave us defeated by our enemies or defeated by the grave. God is the God of the living, not the dead. And he will win against our foes and protect us, protect his people from any enemy. For the judge of the world will do that which is right. And so you see his confidence in verse 15. Justice will prevail. Righteousness will rule and God's people will live by it. You see why he is asking the question back in verse 3. How long, O Lord? So he knows the outcome. He knows justice is coming. He knows the judgment will be. But how long? Has he got to endure? And you see the importance of having some rest, having some respite in the midst of the troubles we're going through. And so we read the psalmist's confidence in verses 16 through to 19. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would have soon lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O oh Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. He has his troubles. Life is not all a bed of rose petals. The wicked and the evildoers are out and about. The pull of death and the dangers of life are ever present. But the psalmist has rest. He has relief. He has respite. And so his strength is found in the Lord, in Yahweh who stands up for him against evildoers, who keeps him alive, not letting him go into the land of silence, who holds him up when his foot slips and who cheers him when he cares of life are many. Friends, let me just encourage you. You're doing the right thing. You're coming to Bible study. Here in the middle of a busy day, let me encourage you for as you learn God's word, as you hear what he has to say, so you're being prepared for whatever troubles and difficulties lie ahead of you. Often people come to me for help when the problems are overwhelming, when their understanding of the word of God is so small that they cannot understand the advice that is being given to them. Because they have not studied God's words, they don't know God's ways, they cannot understand what is happening to them, and they do not understand what they should do about it. Well done, you come to the Bible, not when you have a problem, but because you come to the Bible on a Tuesday lunchtime. But there's one last part of the psalm, starting with the psalmist's question in verse 20. Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. For the world under God's appointment has the wicked rulers running affairs, who live in New South Wales. We who live here, we don't need to be told about wicked rulers. The history of our government has been corruption from beginning of parliament till today. But think of the rulers of Syria and Egypt, of Sudan and Iran, where laws are passed to institute evil instead of good. Can God be associated? God appoints all governments. Can he be associated with evil governments? It's the question and argument in the beginning of Habakkuk in chapter 1. Habakkuk says there's corruption in the land. Come and judge. And God says, I'm sending the Babylonians. And Habakkuk says, the Babylonians? They're worse than the people they're punishing. And God says, but it is my punishment. I will bring them. God can even use evil people to punish the evil people. But God does that. For Yahweh's actions rule over all, bringing about his purposes in the end. Ultimately, the Babylonians would be even more punished. So, in Psalm 94, the psalmist finishes with a great statement of confidence in God's personally and in God's future judgment. The Lord has become my stronghold, my rock, my refuge He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. So as I was reading this psalm with my wife, in the lovely quietness of our morning breakfast nook, the soft music playing on the radio as we read, the psalm just seemed totally discordant with our enjoyment of the lovely, quiet, gentle moment of pleasure when the news came on the radio. It was only the other day. We heard of the fighting in Iraq and the murderous torture of the opponents, including and especially Christians, beheading innocent people. And the fighting in Syria with the ever-growing inhumanity with which people are being treated there and the thousands upon thousands of refugees who are fleeing and the problems of egypt and the terrible persecutions in the sudan and now more conflict in kenya and of course the terrible problem in north nigeria and those girls who have been kidnapped say nothing of the war that is in the booming in the ukraine and the persecutions of people in pakistan and afghanistan and i thought this psalm is exactly right I am living in a paradise. This psalm is for reality. For I again realize the reality of evil and the importance of a psalm like this to address the real situation in which millions of people live. For the reality of evil still affects God's people. We're not separated from it as if God's people will be spared from all suffering or war, hostility. For the reality of evil is that All people, including God's people, are affected by it. And the reality of evil is that it requires justice. It's not good enough just to manage it or escape from it or avoid it or flee from it. The diplomats may have to negotiate peace with evil people and wicked regimes, but in the end, people need to have evil punished. There is no justice for a victim without punishment of the criminal and that punishment must be just retribution and the reality of evil and God's timing is that we are but a breath in history of the world but a moment in eternity yet our consciousness is waiting waiting for justice, waiting for salvation, waiting for God to act, waiting for God's vengeance to be brought to light because we're like little children, waiting, waiting, waiting. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? For us, the perception of reality is the question, how long, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exalt? But when you look back in history, with Hitler, it was a decade. With the Russian communists, it was... A lifetime of 70 years. With Pol Pot it was only three years. But when you suffer for the reality of evil, every day feels like an eternity. And so with our psalmist we cry to the God of vengeance and ask, how long? But this psalm sees the reality of evil and our endurance. For trained and disciplined by God's law... The psalmist knows the refreshment, the rest, the respite, verse 13, that enables him to endure, to stand against the evildoers, to keep alive and not go into the land of silence, to to be held up and not have his foot to slip, to be encouraged and cheerful when the cares of life are very many. My friends, this psalm is not discordant. This psalm is a beautiful encouragement for the people who live in an evil, fallen world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, for his death and resurrection, for his experiencing of all the forces of evil that we might be saved. We pray, Father, for people everywhere, especially the fatherless, the widows, the refugees, and especially for your people, Father, who are in these lands of warfare and struggle in the Middle East and in Africa and in the Indian subcontinent and around the world, Father. We pray, Father, for your mercy and for your help, for your protection. We pray that you would give them rest and respite in the middle of their troubles, that knowing your word, they might live in righteousness and they might look to you to find rest and respite from their troubles. And we pray for them, Father, in particular, in Jesus' name. Amen.